Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast, a brief foray into the world of inborn errors of metabolism. In this fortnightly podcast, I invite the authors of recent papers to discuss their findings and the stories behind their research. We've looked at topics on alcaptonuria to urea cycle disorders and plenty in between, so be sure to have a listen, but not before checking out our latest episode on mucopolysaccharidosis type 1. Hello, welcome back to the podcast and thank you for joining me. Regular listeners will know that I'm unapologetically not a metabolist, so whilst I love to highlight the latest research, a comprehensive review of a topic is always very comforting. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Sandra Kingmer of the Centre for Metabolic Diseases in Antwerp to talk about her work on MPS1, early diagnosis, bone disease and treatment, where are we now? Sandra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Now, it's tempting to just ask, well, where are we now? Um, But let's begin at the beginning. What is mucopolysaccharidosis type 1? Okay, so we will certainly come to where are we now. But first, um, indeed, mucopolysaccharidosis type 1 is a lysosomal storage disorder caused by a deficiency of the enzyme alpha-L-Iduronidase, or in short, IGUA. It results in the accumulation of the glycosaminoglycans, heparin sulfate and dermatin sulfate in several tissues. MPS1 is characterized by a wide spectrum of disease manifestations, including devastating central nervous system disease and also difficult to treat bone disease. And currently there are obviously two treatment options. There's hematopoietic stem cell transplantation and enzyme replacement therapy. I spoke with Robin Lackman recently about ERT and lysosomal storage disorders in another podcast. How does one choose between these two treatments or is it a question that patients need both? So all options are possible. Um, Patients are first classified into phenotypes. So the severe phenotype is classically referred to as Hurler disease. And the more attenuated phenotypes are usually uh, called Hurler-Shea or Shea disease. Phenotype classification is based on age of onset and the presence of intellectual disability, musculoskeletal disorders, cardiomyopathy, and a set of other disease manifestations. Patients that have or patients that are expected to develop central nervous system disease are preferably treated by hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. And enzyme replacement therapy may be used additionally. Patients that are expected not to develop CNS disease are treated with enzyme replacement therapy. And that is because the recombinant enzyme does not cross the blood-brain barrier. And you've talked about sort of characterizing the two groups there. And obviously with what we want to do when we treat is we want to stop brain damage or or, or progressive brain injury. So that means really making the diagnosis as early as possible. How can we make these diagnoses sooner? Okay, so there um, have been several awareness programs in the past, but the effect of these programs, which may be expressed by time to diagnosis, have actually been very disappointing. There are several newborn screening programs that have been initiated uh, in the last couple of years. And this method seems to be the best way to diagnose these patients early. After these patients are diagnosed by newborn screening, however, we need to make decisions on the optimal treatment strategy. This means that we need a tool to very early identify the phenotype or actually rather predict the phenotype um, before irreversible disease manifestations occur. And this is one of the most important challenges that have to be met 
to make newborn screening as beneficial as possible for these patients. And of course, another challenge is to develop effective treatment strategies for MPS1 bone disease. And all of these challenges are discussed in the paper. You've talked about newborn screening there. I know within the UK, they're looking at a, a pilot of genome sequencing for newborn screening. Well, that's obviously a daunting amount of data. But what is it we're currently using to pick up children at newborn screening? So most newborn screening programs use enzyme activity as a first tier strategy. Um, and this is followed by a second tier strategy that may be mutation analysis. So the development or actually the accessibility of these genetic screenings such as next generation, whole exome or genome sequencing, well, it's actually very exciting and it may provide a lot of opportunities. But an important issue is that a lot of variations of unknown significance may be identified. So for research purposes, this is very interesting, actually, but our patients may be confronted with an uncertain future. And these parents and the patients have to wait for a disease that may or may not manifest. And of course, this would have a tremendous impact on their lives. The challenges around exome sequencing in newborn screening was something that we talked about in our To Wears or Not To Wears podcast. When you've talked about this uncertain future for families, uh, is there any better way to try and establish who is the patient who should go on to have a um, hematopoietic stem cell transplantation? Are you doing serial imaging or is it based on a, a biochemical phenotype? How do we know which baby should have this rather extreme treatment and which shouldn't? Well, at this point, we decide on the proper treatment strategy based on the disease manifestations. So just what I said earlier, the age of onset of the disease and all the disease manifestations that have already developed. But obviously this is well on the late side because we don't want these uh, disease manifestations to manifest at all. Um, because for instance, the bone disease and also the central nervous system disease, it's irreversible. So we need some tool to be able to have predict the disease manifestations that have not manifested yet. So we hope that the strategies that are used at this point, genetic screening, symptoms, enzyme analysis, and GAC assays, we can use these to classify the patients in a phenotype. But currently, none of these methods including genetic screening, seem to be reliable enough to classify all patients. So maybe a combination of these methods, for instance, by means of an algorithm, um, well, that has to be studied further. And hopefully it will provide us with a tool to help these patients timely, uh, and particularly the patients that have been diagnosed by a newborn screening. Now, you've mentioned the, the bone changes a couple of times there, and obviously the difficulty around their resistance to treatment what what is the specifically the, the bone phenotype that we see and why does it persist regardless of the treatment given there are a lot of bone disease in uh, in mps1 and in the other mpss and well it's a constellation of radiographic abnormalities that we call dysostosis multiplex and it consists of well a broad range of bone abnormalities and the problem with treating bone abnormalities is that the cartilage and also the ligaments are poorly vascularized, and therefore they are difficult to treat. 
Also, the cartilage in MPS1 patients may have an abnormal structure that further prevents um, the enzyme IDUA to reach its target cells. And actually, there is some evidence that MPS osteoblasts have a decreased uptake of IGUA. Also very important is that the bone abnormalities actually occur very early in life and maybe even before birth. And that poses a, well, a big problem, of course. And also, which is problematic, is because survival of MPS1 patients have increased with current treatment strategies, the morbidity due to this bone disease actually increases. So um, when patients live longer, they will actually suffer from manifestations that are difficult to treat with the current therapies. So we need studies on pathophysiology to, to have a better understanding of MPS1 bone disease and be able to develop an effective therapy And of course, pathophysiology may be studied in MPS1, but we can extrapolate the results of uh, studies on other other MPSs because the diseases share many characteristics. I think it's interesting that as we achieve success in treating some of these conditions, we discover this sort of new post-treatment phenotype and and some of the additional problems that, that go along with that. Exactly. In the title of your paper, you ask, where are we now? But your paper includes a lot about where we're going. Um, there's some talk about gene therapy in your paper, and the journal published a paper on gene therapy in MPS1 quite recently, and it's encouraged listeners to go and have a look for that themselves. But what is it that most excites you about the progress we're making? Uh, indeed, the paper of Hurt uh, and uh, colleagues on gene therapy was very interesting, and I would certainly encourage the, the listeners to read it. Gene therapy is often considered at this point to be the holy grail of treating or even correcting inborn errors of metabolism, including MPS1. And of course, I am most excited about the opportunities that it will present to treat tissues that are currently very difficult to treat, such as cartilage and therefore bone disease. There are actually some promising results of ex vivo gene therapy that are described in their paper and also in our paper. And there are some encouraging results of genome editing. Well, and if you're interested in the efficacy of gene therapy on specifically bone disease, we refer to that in our own paper. And certainly I appreciate that your paper is such a a thorough overview, not just of, of recent treatment, but really the condition as a whole. Um, where do you see the future going with regards to screening? Because I think treatment is only as good as the patients we detect. I mean, in the UK, we don't we don't look for this. I don't know that we have any plans to look for this. How do you um, see screening spreading for, for MPS1? Well, we see the newborn screening spreading over the world at this point. Uh, the Netherlands just included MPS1 to their newborn screening programs, and it will, I think, continue to spread. Well, I actually think that it's a good thing because it provides us with an opportunity to early diagnose these patients. And we then have an opportunity to be able to treat these patients early. Um, Of course, we have a lot of variants of unknown significance. But on the other hand, maybe it might provide us with information on very early onset disease manifestations that we can study in the patients that will be diagnosed by newborn screening. I don't think you've mentioned it in your paper, but you've talked about those sort of the subtler presentations in the sort of the shui end of the spectrum. And I know that there's been some work looking at trying to detect sort of undiagnosed patients based on 
certain clinical phenotypes like recurrent um, recurrent hernias or carpal tunnel syndrome in, in young children? Is that something that you've been involved with at all? Um, a couple of years ago, I did my study on uh, very early onset disease manifestations with uh, colleagues from Amsterdam, and we tried to um, develop a tool to diagnose these patients early. Um, and I refer to that in the paper that we just uh, wrote, but it was a small study and it has to be studied further in a larger subset of patients. One of the things I really want to achieve with the podcast is to raise awareness amongst non-specialists. And it's just trying to get people to think metabolic when they have these slightly unusual presentations. I think it's such an important thing to do. Yeah, well, there are still some awareness programs going on. Obviously, with the COVID pandemic, it has been problematic. But though in Belgium now, they're, um, they're um, again starting with some awareness programs to inform pediatricians and also other subspecialists about the very early onset symptoms of MPS-1. And of course, it's more beneficial in the countries that don't have uh, MPS-1 as part of their newborn screening programs. But with the awareness programs, although we did not have that good results earlier, it, well, there's still some uh, development there. Perfect. Uh, thank you. It's, it's been a real treat listening to you talk. I feel like I've had my own private tutorial on MPS-1. Um Hopefully it will have been just as informative for those listening. If you'd like to read the paper, then click on the link in the podcast information or search on our journal web pages for MPS1, Where Are We Now? And if you'd like to hear more about treatments in lysosomal storage diseases, uh, then be sure to check out our recent podcast. Just search for JMD Podcast wherever you like to listen. Sandra, thank you uh, again so much for your time and your teaching. Thank you again. <laughs> and thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.